Hello everyone, welcome to the right green and uh, we have Vanil Hussain back at the house. Thank you for having me on board again. My friends in Kabul and Iran, they're still in a very precarious situation but a lot of them have been like starting, have started to post Sufi poems on uh, their pages or as custom messages in, on social media. Yeah one line from Rumi. Sufi poetry, you know, when people usually talk about it, especially Westerners, they kind of like just quote Rumi. So, why Rumi in the first place? And uh, how broad the scope of uh, Sufi poetry is? Why uh, Malanma Rumi is so much more famous than the others? Uh, well, to start off, uh, Rumi, per se, is not Turkish. Yeah. Okay, so he he, does, he is not a Turk. He is a migrant Afghan yeah. who came and who settled in uh, the Seljuk Empire, uh, which was basically um, earlier, uh, you know, ruled by the Byzantines, which is why it used to be called Rum. And uh, because um, um, you know Jalaluddin Rumi settled in in Konya, which is which used to be the capital of erstwhile Rum, he was then called Rumi. So that's what how was, that's how he got what the was name. He before, what was he before that? He, before that, he was known as uh, Jalaluddin Muhammad Balkhi because he used to come from a place Bal- called Bal, yeah, which is in today yeah. modern Afghanistan. Okay. That okay. was his uh, his birthplace, and um, uh, one of the biggest reasons why Rumi is so much more uh, quoted and called uh, best-selling poet or you know most popular is because. Rumi, unlike all the other Sufis, was already a scholar before he took up Sufism as a part of his poetry. So he was a renowned, educated scholar and a teacher before he encountered uh, Shams Tabrizi. Uh, Shams Tabrizi was uh, a traditional sense fakir. He, he wasn't educated in a university or in a madrasa. He, uh, Shams Tabrizi could got most of his education from his father. And uh, while he moved around uh, the Middle East uh, region, he went to uh, Mecca, he went to Medina, he went to um, uh, Tigris, he went to Cairo. So the places that uh, that Shams Tabriz went to, he he picked up and he learned and he um, sort of honed his um, his education, his skills while on the road. Okay. On the other hand, Rumi was more polished and more, um, you know, uh, in, in what you can say, convent educated. Very ironic how the two actually ended up meeting and you know how um, uh, Rumi's life transformed after he met Shams Tabrizi. Up until um, Rumi uh, met Shams Tabrizi, he used to be a teacher and uh, in his school in Konya, he used to teach uh, princes, aristocrats, you know, their kids, etc. And he used to teach them um, you know, um, uh, the values of Islam, scholarly text, etc. So his writing before he met Shams was very contained. And after he met Shams and uh, was completely in awe and became a disciple of Shams the Prezi, uh, Rumi lost interest in the world. So he then, he then Rumi becomes a mystic. So Rumi becomes a mystic after he meets Shams the Prezi. Before that, he was uh, he was a renowned writer who wrote about the world and uh, once he met Shams Tabrizi and he realized that you know divinity had a much bigger power than worldly uh, pleasures 
Rumi and his writings became so much more about devotion, about depth, about uh, you know universal purity, love, and longing that his works from uh, post having met uh, Shams Tabrizi are far more famous and far more um, popular than his earlier works. When you talk about devotion, are you talking about like devotion to God or devotion between human beings as well? I am going to I am going to ask you one very simple question. I hope you heard this song called uh, "Mera Pia Gharaya." Ha. So when 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 you hear those lyrics, "Mera Pia Gharaya," who are you thinking about? Your lover or husband or something, right? Somebody you love, basically, right? So that's absolutely wrong. No. <laughs> Which is exactly why I brought up this uh, this example because. Uh, I, said, I, said, I, said, I mean, the way the dance is, the song is choreographed, the dance is choreographed. Like that, would have done that, right? Yeah. What you see, what you see is a compartmentalization of the lyrics by Bollywood, okay. and not uh, what Bullesha actually intended when he wrote this. Okay. So if you if you go back and visit uh, if this one, and why I'm saying this one is because this is in Hindi and Punjabi, so it'll be easier for you to understand as compared to if I were to ask you to read some of uh, you know Shams Tabrizi as well as Rumi's original work, which is in Farsi, yeah. it would be very difficult for you to understand because a lot is lost in translation, and that is one of the problems I have with a lot of uh, work in Western uh, world that has been translated from Farsi. a uh, few very crucial meanings get lost in translation because if the translator or the writer fails to understand what the author was thinking about then he or she uses the word or the phrase in the limited understanding of the author of the translator and not of the divinity that the author thought of okay. now i'll explain that with with uh, pia now the word pia is a is a loose word which says beloved translated mera pia is my beloved your beloved is your son your daughter your brother your sister your mother your father your husband your lover your god your guru your influencer your disciple that word can fit just about anyone around you if used in in a very general sense what bollywood basically did was bollywood just made us assume that pia was a lover and only a lover and not a beloved so there's okay. a big difference between beloved and lover okay oh yeah so the same thing in punjab in in same uh, context when you say mera saiya hmm. so again saiya is more closer to lover than pia pia hmm. is a more general term saiya is more closer to your friend lover you know someone who is more intimate with so the the difference is that when you translate it Beloved automatically becomes lover. You know, so somehow, somehow when when yeah. you mentioned me, like Pia Gharaya, and it uh, immediately my head was Madhuri Dixit, and then yeah. now that you're talking yeah. about it, that you're talking about the Bulesha and all, now I remember Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan. How the devotion from Farsi gets misconstrued and often misunderstood when it is uh, translated to English and other languages in the Western world. Hmm. the 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 meaning of devotion is pure but unfortunately what we do is we try to compartmentalize it into human society relationships but that's also okay, because that's also because farsi has seven or eight different words for different kinds of devotion like you know the 
uh, between friends there's one word i remember this man uh, i was uh, i was uh, teaching one of my afghan students uh, and he was like attempting to teach me dari and there's like one word for uh, mother there's one word for father uh, father devotion to father one word for devotion to siblings one word for devotion to your children one word for like devotion to your friend one word one or two words of devotion to a lover you know so there's so many different words and then in english it comes down to love and devotion while translating the limited knowledge of the translator limits your own understanding when you're reading the translated work and that is where a lot of uh, a lot of uh, um, you know sufi poetry uh, begins to look like uh, love odes now the other thing about sufi works is that uh, very few of them actually name a god or a person while they are uh, composing the ode so when uh, when when bulle shah says that uh, um, you know yaar nu manana aasan nahi nach nach de manana padta hai so in punjabi it's it's a um, it's a comparison if you read this line in um, in singularity it says yaar nu manana now yaar according to you is your friend right yaar according to bulle shah is also your lover yaar according to bulle is also someone who you admire not necessarily in a in a sexual context someone that you admire is also a yaar you look at you know that and then the uh, the poetry says that yaar nu mananda mushkil because nach nach ke then you have to dance literally to their tunes to make them uh, to appease them but if you wanted to appease your god all you have to do is pray to him and your god is happy so the the meaning that bullesha was trying to um, portray from these lines is not that your lover is more adamant Bullesha was trying to say that if you give the same devotion to a partner, there is a lot more effort you need to put in to appease this partner. But if the same devotion you did for God, all you have to do is raise your eyebrow, eyes above to the sky, and and pray to God, and God is happy. You don't have to do much. So what Bullesha was basically trying to say is that your devotion towards God is simpler than your devotion towards a person. now when we derive it we just we just look at it from the limited um, you know you know translation of saying that you know it's easier to it's easier to just you know uh, go uh, the divine way rather than you know go the romantic way because from where we come or from where we understand we tend to you know use them according to our own understandings and not from what the author decided to write about now i'll come back to rumi now when rumi and shams tabriz actually spent only about 3 years together in their entire lifetime uh, uh, shams tabriz was around 22 or 23 years older than rumi so when uh, when rumi and shams tabriz actually met um, um shams tabriz was in his 60s so almost yeah in his 60s and yeah and, um, and you know he was near and rumi was nearing his 40s or 38 or 39 when he met uh, when he met uh, shams tabriz and there is an incident of why rumi became a follower of shams tabrizi now shams tabrizi was a, a, a fakir so when you when i say fakir you can imagine the kind of attire that the person would be yeah. uh, donning moving around you know broken slippers uh, torn tattered clothing kept hair um, facial growth overgrowth hair whatever so this is a typical fakir who has nothing um, no worldly 
desires pleasures assets or whatever he's just walking around and then there he finds rumi in his royal attire sitting and tutoring students so this is a this is a very ironic comparison because here is shams tabrez who's a uh, who's a sufi and a faqir in dressed in the right sense and he comes and meets um, you know rumi who's dressed in a much more aristocrat um, attire than what we see rumi of today so the when they met there was an incident which um, which is quite disputed a lot of there are a lot of versions of it of what actually happened um the, but what happened was at the end of this incident rumi um left everything behind and ran after shams tabrezi saying that please make me your disciple and i would like to learn uh, this knowledge uh, that you have and this light that you have in your heart and in your forehead and from there on rumi becomes a disciple of shams tabrezi and for the next 3 years rumi transforms into a sufi faqir and he leaves behind his school his classes and his disciples and his disciples have no idea what exactly happened to our teacher um and out of jealousy um the disciples drive shams tabrezi away from rumi um there are incidents or rather there are stories and narrations which say that some of the students actually murdered shams tabrezi while he was in konya but that's not true because uh, shams tabrezi was actually buried in iran uh, he left um, he left konya and went back to iran the best works of rumi came after his his uh, after he lost shams tabrezi yes so the longing of love the desire the endless wait these are all that rumi wrote for shams tabrezi okay and because he was so affected by the knowledge and the words and the works of shams tabrezi that rumi was never able to go back to his own old world rumi was lost in thought lost in devotion of what path shams tabrezi showed him as compared to what he was whatever life he was leading earlier between the two of them shams tabrezi uh, was already married he had two children who followed him around um uh, rumi was also married and he had kids in fact there is a story about how shams tabrezi married a girl from rumi's household there is no clarity whether uh, the girl that shams tabrezi married was actually uh, rumi's daughter or was it someone who was brought up in rumi's household so there is no clarity there but there is a the, this is the fact that a daughter from rumi's house was married off to shams tabrezi and um, in a year after from the marriage uh, she passed away from illness um and i think a year later uh, shams tabrezi also passed away this work of uh, sufism that that rumi came out with was because he uh, felt so strongly for the path that shams tabrezi uh, showed him and therefore all of his works post that incident are very very strong and full of depth because they come from within they come from a earnest longing for uh, for a person for the companionship for the teachings that uh, that shams tabrezi was able to uh, give to rumi and change uh, his life so um, in literally sense you know shams means the sun okay shams means the sun in arabic shams the means sun, the sun sun of tabrezi like that Tabrezi. Yeah, and Tabrezi, Tabrezi is comes from Tabrezi. Therefore, yeah, therefore Tabrezi. Uh, wherever Shams Tabrezi went, he, he he gave new meaning to people that whose lives he touched. 
he gave them signs of uh, peace he gave them ways to find god and devotion nowhere in any of their works do they ever mention in the name of a god because for them divinity is to be reached from within to go back to something like what what amir khusro wrote what bulle shah wrote what uh, hafiz wrote or what shiraz wrote uh, most of their writings you will find that you know they usually say stuff like why are you roaming around looking for god in temples and mosques look within and god is right there okay and in in different words or in different formats of prose you will find the same message across sufism so you will find the same message coming out of iran from from turkey from afghanistan from uh, from kashmir from baghdad all the messages that you get from sufis will be that stop looking for god in big walls and in 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 temples or in mosques look within because god is within you if you can find god within you you can find peace and you will find divinity there is no reason for you to go out and look for uh, look for a god uh this was the message that all sufis usually tell you because otherwise sufis would not uh would not be uh, living their lives in an austere manner like fakir because yeah. for them they have nothing to gain it's all inwards they're carrying god and love within them rather than going to a particular place to look for him or to look for um, you know peace or it's within you that's the message that sufism usually gives and if you can't find peace within yourself you will never find it anywhere else never we went to rohaniya it was uh, that festival in bombay where uh, the, there was was uh, you know uh, uh, two musicians from burkina faso in africa and then that obviously we heard it in punjabi in india you know so it it been very um, uh, i don't know interpreted very easily in many of these languages and translated into ियल Uh, every region had a peculiar uh, instrument that they used there was the dafli uh, there is the tabla there is the tanpura there is the tuntuna there is the jhimli there is um, um, you know there are uh, vocals and no music etc so th- there is according to the region and according to the instrument available in that particular region the sufi poetry was turned into either a poetry a song a ghazal or a qawali now if we look from if you look from east towards west and when we look from west towards east and i'm talking about the middle east and the indian subcontinent because that is primarily where the entire uh, sufi belt is so if we look if we look at the uh, the works in turkey the works in iran you will find that most of the sufi uh, poetry music etc there is devoid of instruments there is not a lot of heavy um, deployment of instruments or dependence on instruments it is mostly vocals and let's move towards what is modern day pakistan um, a city called multan the multan which is also a city of saints and which is so popular in the qawwali culture that there is the harmonium there is the tabla there is the there is the dafli and here is where the, for the first time we get to see um 
the pile we get to see a lot of uh, metal clanging around the fakir's waist um we get to see um, you know what do kathak uh, dancers wear ghungru ghungru yes so we also get to see ghungru in bulle shah's uh, darbar do they also use the mantira the typical uh, yes, yes, very temple yes. thing usually uh, like yes. krishna temple uh, use mantiras yes. when we move from uh, from turkey iran anatolia region towards uh, what is modern day pakistan and punjab in india today you'll see the uh, transformation of the instruments also and how heavily instruments influence the work of this particular region where the qawali is born and then we move further towards rajasthan where we find ajmer we move further towards delhi where uh, we find the uh, nizamuddin we find chirag delhi we find um, move towards um, you know fatehpur sikri and you find salim chishti move even further down towards up in bahraich you will find kalandar um, so as you move towards the indian subcontinent uh, going toward from you know from iran towards the rest of the indian subcontinent you will see more and more instruments uh, being uh, influencing sufi songs and then from here also come original compositions because the message is very much same you know what uh, the situation in in uh, in turkey uh, in um, in anatolia for that matter what you've written there may not necessarily resonate with someone in punjab yeah because punjab's a more fertile place yeah, uh, yeah. than it was anatolia is a dry limestone land where they've never seen a river you know if you if you were to compose a poem saying that i will drink the entire chenab and still my thirst for love in will not be quenched if you say this couplet in uh, in anatolia and they would have no idea what chenab is <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> so then and you come to and you come back to uh, to punjab and and say that you know i will drink the entire rabi and chenab and it resonates with the audience and they know what you're talking about they're saying that you know if you drank a river and still your thirst for love for knowledge is not able to be quenched it means that okay this is a much deeper or much higher power so the 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 songs or rather the lyrics written by bulle shah the ones written by amir khusru are very local okay. at the same time while they are they have extremely deep meaning like i have explained with mirpia garaiga they they have a lot of local flavor as well for people to be able to understand resonate and come back to um, to to understand the meaning of what the writer is trying to say and these these uh, in modern time today if you see you know the the qawalis of Uh, a thousand years old, whatever Amir Khusru wrote, what Bulle Shah wrote, you know, even today, uh, Bollywood and Hindi film songs, uh, you know, uh, rely heavily on these works. Obviously, they they pick uh, some of the terms, some of the phrases, and then modify it. But uh, in all honesty, um, they are still relevant. So, which which tells you that a message that was a thousand years old, that's been written a, close to a thousand years before. uh today's modern times is still yeah. relevant you pick that line and it's still relevant so that shows you the yes that shows you the that shows you the the writing and the, the quality of the writing that you can pick it from any situation and it will apply to um to a situation to a setting etc except like if you change you know geolocations etc then which if it's a very specific um, you know uh, writing then then it's very difficult to to uh, to understand that but If you go back to if you go back to um, you know the Farsi works, 
they will always be the purest when it comes to sufi writing uh, not say, not saying that you know because they are purest the others are not but the thing is that it it evolved in parsi and in turkish that's from where the the, uh, the whole sufi poetry started off it then moved to various parts because sufis do not hang around in one spot their yeah. their basic thing is to move around if you if you just look at shams shams tabrizi moved to about maybe eight cities eight or nine cities i don't remember them all off hand but he moved to at least eight or nine cities and these were across africa across the middle east know, yeah. and he 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 also uh, um, you know rumi actually came back all the way till kashmir yeah yeah so, in hunt in search for in search for shams they 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 actually did come to kashmir so you know uh, they managed to touch the indian peninsula as well uh, by uh, by their devotion and the and the search for themselves unfortunately what has happened today is that uh, a lot of people um, uh, tend to look at the love or the devotion between two males uh, in a very significant insignificant rather way of um, of assuming that you can more yeah they were more keenly and intimately interested in each other uh, yeah. they were not the bouncing knowledge of each other rather than um, you know being intimately interested in each other's bodies they were more interested in each other's souls uh, that's an un- really unfortunate uh, thing associated with sufism because uh, everywhere you would find at least two people like you will find a guru and a um a, a murid like you will find nizamuddin and amir khusro amir khusro requested that i want to be buried at the feet of my guru and which is why uh, nizamuddin aulia's uh, shrine amir khusro is buried at his feet so he is right there uh, unfortunately shams and rumi could not be uh, buried in the same shrine but if you go back to jalaluddin rumi's uh, shrine in konya there is a symbolic uh, tomb for um, for shams tabrizi that uh, that uh, you know rumi had built so that you know he could pay uh, his respects to him because he had no idea where shams had gone you know, shams was was gone from him um, forever shams tabrizi's uh, symbolic tombs are available in uh, lots of cities yeah. uh, over and above the actual place that he was buried in shams would go to a city uh, teach and then when he realized that the people here do not need him anymore he would just move away without saying a word and when people didn't find him they thought that maybe he died and they made a tomb a symbolic tomb for him in one of his early books uh, william dalgunko had landed in khabar uh, in sind then there was a small uh, tomb of a mausoleum of a sufi saint and he discovered that a lot of the devotees who were done there were hindu and yeah hindu women you know so uh, that came as a surprise to him because uh, he was like i've been like traveling along the silk road all over the place and this is the only place i've seen women dancing freely like in in an islamic country you know just <laughs> letting loose and see to another point now women sufi poets why don't we hear about them the dance that that you see at most sufi shrines it's very similar to what the whirling dervishes do yeah the movement yeah the movement is very 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 similar and uh, that per se is um, in conventional sense not actually a dance because you know when the person uh, looks up towards the sky raises his or her hands and is trying to you know be one with the universe that time the 
mind loses some sort of control over the body and the body has no idea what it's doing so the 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 dance the free dance so to speak that that uh, william saw at uh, most of these uh, dargahs and multan etc these are basically people who have let go of their inhibitions and they are trying to be one with their god and you will find the same uh, movements that the whirling dervishes do you'll find the same movements that the kalandaris do you'll find the same movements that people um, tend to do when they are in a trance at a, yeah. at a dargah or at a qawali the circular movements yeah they're all they're all they're all the same so this is a way of connecting with with god that's the that's the one now coming back to why there are no female sufi poets it's a much harder life of a sufi um, as far as writing is concerned while there are a bunch of uh, female writers most of them never came out in the open like rumi did or shams did because for the simple reason that the following of a female sufi poet or a sufi faqir would not be seen as um, nobly as the following of a male sufi poet we live in a patriarchal society so irrespective of whether whether meera gave devotion in her life or meera was considered to be you know mad enough to leave everything and walk away meera had devotion but do we ever look at meera in a very very clear uh, and consciously open way no, there's we... always a hint yeah there's always a hint of malice when we look at meera even though there is no malice in meera's intentions meera's intentions are pure meera's intentions are of extreme devotion of unadulterated devotion but how does we how do we as society view meera do we view her as um as pious and as austere as we would look at rumi or or we would look at shams or we would look at uh, nizamuddin will we look at meera the same way no definitely i mean uh, we don't even like worship her you know if, if she would have uh, be respected enough i'm sure there would have been a temple that's primarily what happens that you know uh, our society has forever been patriarchal therefore in order to even honor you know there are there are a lot of writings there are a lot of um, you know works done by females but they are all limited to um, you know collections and not made as public as they were with the other sufi saints and it's an unfortunate uh, you know turn of events or whatever you call it but uh, that is true that is the way our society has been you know even you know, let's not forget about women altogether but even for men like even shams shams tabrizi was called a, 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 a magician uh, he was he was stoned by people who didn't understand um, you know what he was saying and how is it that you know he was able to perform certain miracles so you know um, there are uh, there are sufi saints who have been attacked who have been imprisoned who have been uh, decapitated yeah aurangzeb uh, i think was one of them who kind of like just uh, was anti sufism altogether and actually no aurangzeb no? was a sufi he was a sufi the way it's presented in indian history textbooks that yeah. aurangzeb was like the heart mind of the doctor amongst shah jahan's kids jahara the oldest daughter was a sufi 
okay so jahan ara was the sufi and she is buried in the same uh, compound as nawaz as nizamuddin aulia in delhi she was the one who constructed chandni chowk he she was the one who constructed uh, most of uh, the markets outside the red fort and she was the sufi so she uh, was a sufi and she uh, wanted herself to be buried in open grave inside the compound of uh, nizamuddin aulia and that is where she is buried today in comparison dara shiko the fight between dara shiko and aurangzeb was actually political it had nothing to do with their religious beliefs or uh, what each one believed it was primarily um, no, political because had that been the case then um, you know roshanara would not be close to uh, aurangzeb yeah roshanara was um, actually responsible for beheading uh, uh, dara shiko and not aurangzeb so uh, history um, mentions this but unfortunately the books we read in, in our textbooks uh, glosses over the fact that it was actually roshanara who ordered the beheading of uh, uh, dara shiko and not aurangzeb aurangzeb never beheaded him. amongst all the turmoil uh, across the indian subcontinent amongst all the wars and all the loss of life that we had sufis have always played a very important role in not just coming the mass population you know people would actually go to a sufi saint shrine and sit there and listen to the qawwali because they were so stressed out uh, and they were hungry uh, they uh, they were affected by famine they were affected by the wars and the taxes they would actually go and this was across religions this was hindus muslims anyone who was depressed or hurt or feeling lonely would actually go to the uh, sufi shrine or their abode and listen to them and they would actually feel relieved uh, and de-stressed by this which is why uh, across centuries sufis in india have actually held a very very important role um, right from alauddin khilji to um, to akbar you know you know the we all know the famous akbar and salim chishti connection Uh, we know uh, we know alauddin khilji and bakhtiyar kaki's connection we know nizamuddin amir khusro amir khusro was a courtier in alauddin khilji's uh, court and he left that to come and serve a fakir and alauddin khilji was probably taken apart uh, taken aback thinking why does this man want to leave my court for a fakir's uh, abode you know so that was also a very surprising thing for uh, for a monarch to, to realize and to know that in fact uh, in fact um, alauddin khilji was able to uh, you know hold back the invading mongols from actually attacking and invading india by the blessings of a sufi saint bakhtiyar kaki mehrauli he had the blessings of a fakir and and walked in to a, to a, to a battle saying uh, i can't lose because god is with me and when you are that confident It doesn't matter if you're fighting the devil himself, and at that point of time, the Mongols really were the uh, the no definition devil. of what we call. <laughs> yeah, they were the definition. They were the most um, revered, scary, horrible monsters that we had. They went all the way up to, you know, um, to Europe. You know, they 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 are responsible for eradicating and wiping out cities. Um, you know, civilizations. Um, yeah. and those guys were were kept at bay by this uh, by this khilji yeah. in all because he had the blessings of the sufi so it was not primarily that khilji had the blessings of the sufi the sufi blessed the land of uh, india that you know you will prosper and not be put to the sword by these invading monsters so the 
the sufi basically blessed delhi blessed the merali and which is why the mongols were not able to um, you know invade and uh, cause the same havoc and chaos that they caused in the rest of central asia and europe thank you very much for throwing light on sufi poetry